Hello, hello, friends. Daddy Drew here from Disability After Dark. Nice to see you. Hello, and thank you for coming back onto the feed. I am putting out a special episode of another show that I run on the Wheels on the Ground Network called Crip Times, and it's run by my friends Kayla, Yusef, and Christina. And I wanted to put it on the feed so that you lovely listeners will go on their feed and download their new show, Crip Times. So this, what you're going to be hearing right now, is the third episode of Crip Times, run on my network, the Wheels on the Ground Network. Super awesome, really excited about that. And I wanted to just put this on my feed today so you can hear other disability content that isn't me. And I wanted to give their show a chance to try it. And I would love for you to, after you're done listening, subscribe to the Crip Times feed wherever you get your podcasts. And then you can get their show once a week. But I wanted you to hear their new episode on my on my channel so that you could get some so that they so sorry, so that they could get some traction and their show could, could get picked up and all you wonderful listeners that listen to me could hear their show. So, without further ado, here's the third episode of the Crip Times podcast. Right now on the Wheels on the Ground Network. Thanks, friends. You are listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Crip Times. Today on Crip Times, we will be listening to Ben Barry the chair of the Ryerson University School of Fashion, with your hosts, Christina and Kayla. So today on the podcast, we have one of my favorite humans, Ben Perry. I've known Ben for almost eight years now, and for those eight years, he's been a leader um, in fashion, in social change, in just how to be a good person in the world. And I've had the privilege of working with him as a student and a research assistant. Um, and I'm really excited to get to share this expertise, this knowledge, this way of being in the world. So, Ben, thank you so much for being a guest on Crip Time. Uh, I couldn't have done this podcast without having you on here and getting to share you with this community, so thank you. Oh, thank you for that introduction. The feeling is completely mutual. I would want to interview you on all of these themes too, um, but I'm really excited, and thanks for inviting me on. Amazing, and obviously there are going to be people who don't know you as well as I know you, so could you introduce yourself to our listeners and transcript readers? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Barry. I use he, him pronouns. I am a white settler who is disability identified with low vision. I am chair and associate professor in the School of Fashion at Ryerson. And my work, um, really, for my entire life has been to stretch and expand the definition of fashion towards justice and liberation. Oof, what an intro. Yeah. 
no no small order, but um, obviously you're you're out there doing it, so that's fantastic. And as we're recording this, it's September 3rd, so a lot of us are in back-to-school mode. Um, and then, obviously, um, I know that's on your mind, so maybe you want to talk a little bit about what that looks like in these pandemic times and um, how you're feeling. Yeah, I think for so many schools, we've been faced with how to deliver a curriculum remotely. And it's especially challenging in a program like fashion where so much of the program isn't lecture-based or essay-based, but it's about making. It's about engaging with the senses, with materials, um, and creating, and often creating with and for bodies. And so figuring out how we do that virtually is an experiment, but an exciting one. So we've really spent the summer sending machines, materials, equipment to our students um, across Canada and trying to just imagine how we can create remotely. Wow, that's really cool. And for folks who don't follow you on Instagram, mm-hmm. uh, you posted an absolutely beautiful caption kind of encapsulating what you just mentioned. Um, What was important to you about posting kind of these intentions so publicly, not only for your students, but even your community? Yeah, I wrote an introductory, which I do every semester, a welcome introduction to the new year. But I think for this year, there were really two points I wanted to make. The first was recognizing that moving to a a remote semester is pretty unsettling and particularly unsettling in a time of global pandemic and racial injustice. And so my goal was for students to know that they will be treated and worked in a way that exercises totally compassion and flexibility um, in ways that recognize that working from home is really stressful, it can be really isolating, um, and it can be pretty inequitable. And so the expectation is that everyone does their best, and recognizing that best is really different depending on your circumstances, right? Depending on your experiences, your living situation, your financial security, and so many other factors. And really wanting to assure people that we understand that and we're there to support them. But also recognizing that creative work and fashion being creative work can really move the world. And so, yes, I recognize we're feeling unsettled and nervous and exhausted, but how and in what ways can we tap into this moment um, to influence our work? And so what possibilities can our work open up? What stories can we tell? How can we move the world through what we create? Um, And recognizing that fashion is and can be part of social change. And so how can we do that right now in the classroom um, to move the world in a way that it needs to move right now? Yeah, I think perhaps some of our listeners or readers might be thinking, what the heck does fashion have to do with social change and social justice? Um, Fashion is often discredited, right, as a trivial aspect of society or something frivolous. Um, And so 
why, what does fashion have to do with disability arts and with justice in this moment? And how might we all tap into that a little bit? I think that's such a great question, such a great place to start this conversation. Um, because fashion has really been appropriated and misrepresented and misused as a result of colonization and slavery. Um, mm -hmm. Fashion is really about telling stories, telling histories, living in our bodies, building community and relationships. That's the role of fashion and the role fashion has played since time immemorial on the land I'm on, on indigenous land. Um, but because of colonization and slavery, fashion was co-opted um, and tied to this idea of modernity and industrialization and seen as being born and only existing in Europe. And so this sort of dominance and hegemony of a few fashion brands in Europe started to take over. And anything that wasn't European, anything that wasn't white, was banned, was ridden off as simply clothing or ethnic dress or costume and seen as something that was, quote, traditional, historic, and now extinct. Um, and because of that story, um, fashion was then reborn in this way that was super exclusive, um, super narrow, and super limiting. And so very few people could engage with fashion, and those people who could engage with fashion did it at the cost and expense of so many other people, so many other cultures, so many other laborers, and of course, our planet. Um, and so I think because of that kind of rebirth of fashion in a form that was really dominating and exclusive, um, it's made so many of us feel completely alienated because fashion isn't created or designed for our bodies, isn't accessible for our price points. We don't see ourselves represented in fashion, whether it's on a runway or whether it's in who serves as editors and designers and creative directors. Um, and it's been used in this way really to exercise power and power over other people. And I think because of that, so many of us feel just really intimidated by fashion and I think really, um, and rightly so, hostile to fashion because it's been such an exclusionary force. But I really, and so much of the work I do in the teaching and my own thinking, I try to go back to what fashion always has been and what it was. This really fluid and expansive idea of how we tell stories and engage with community and think and dress and live in our bodies. Um, that's what fashion really was at the start. And that's, I think, what needs to be reclaimed when we think about fashion and social justice. Wow. I want to go back and <laughs> do a bachelor's in fashion communications once again, just to hear that lecture every day. <laughs> I don't even know what the next question is going to be. I just want to like sit and ruminate on that. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. I mean, but I think like I think it's important because I think that idea of fashion has really been used to divide and to create hierarchy, right? All parts of a colonial um, white settler project. And I think it's so important to try to move away from that. And I think what's exciting is there is so much happening in the fashion space that is being reclaimed. And I know we'll talk about um, queer crypt designers doing that, uh, 
St. Paul and Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, um, an incredible group of Indigenous designers that are fostering resurgence through fashion, um, and so, so, so much more. Uh, but I think part of it is, yes, it's happening in the world, but also how can that happen in fashion school, right? How can fashion school and fashion education be a place where BIPOC, disability-identified folks that have just been marginalized from fashion feel welcomed into the space to draw from their lived experiences, draw from their histories, from their narratives, from their bodies, and create. Create clothes that really tell stories and allow other people to live in their bodies in the way they want. And so much of my work as a fashion educator is about how do we create that space? How do we create a mm -hmm. space through curriculum uh, that is inclusive and that represents the diversity of students? And how do we create a culture where people feel they don't need to hide aspects of who they are, um, but they can really bring their whole diverse, intersectional selves to the classroom into the studio and feel that that will be respected and honored and cared for. Um, mm. And I don't think we're fully there yet. I think there's still a lot of work to do, but that's certainly the journey we're on. Because I think if we can model that in fashion education, we can create a community, worldviews, practices that then bring that out into the world whether that's in industry, whether that's in community, whether that's just in everyday dressing, um, but ways that really bring fashion back to what, as I said, it always was. Mm. Yeah, maybe that's a good place for us to talk about how actually all, all three of us in this conversation have done work on relaxed performance, um, which has its origins in the theater world and opening up theater and performance spaces to be as accessible as possible to as many bodies as possible. And you took on this really exciting project of bringing relaxed performance to a fashion show, um, which is completely magical. So maybe you want to talk about what that process looked like. Yeah, that, this all came about through really Christina, who introduced me to the folks at British Council, at Cripping the Arts, uh, who were engaging in this really exciting project, as you know, on bringing relaxed performance to the classroom and seeing how that gets taken up in education. And so we decided to bring this to a fashion event planning class uh, to imagine what a fashion show could be like if we started with access as the foundation. So not building a show and then adding access on as sort of after the fact, but what happens when we create and design from a place of access to start? And how does that then access open up and become an aesthetic? How does access become a way of thinking and doing and a way of engaging? And so that was really the goal of the class. And it was a class that was a combined class of undergraduate and graduate fashion students. Um, some of them had lived experience with disability, but others did not. And others, and most of them had never studied disability studies before. And so the course was sort of this balance of introducing them to disability studies, crypt theory, alongside fashion event planning, um, and imagining what these worlds would look like together. And so I know that you invited models, right? You did an open call for disabled models? 
Yeah, so the students were divided into teams. Um, so teams looked after, uh, an overall team that looked after access, production, models and casting, styling, and promotion. And thinking about crypt theory and disability justice, it was really important that this show wasn't just going to be created with students, but really be co-created with community. And so the students did a call out to disability and deaf identified folks and disability justice allies, encouraging them to model for the fashion show and to help create the fashion show. And in return, there would be an honorarium and a way for them to really help create the space. And really just through putting a kind of call out on Instagram, it was pretty incredible, the response. And we had 29 folks um, ranging in all types of lived experience who participated in the show. And they picked their own outfits that they felt best expressed them and told the story of who they were. Uh, and they had a chance to put together some words about what those outfits meant um, and how they would describe them and how they would describe themselves which was used for the audio description and also in the program. So it was a really an experiment because this had not been done before, uh, to the best of my knowledge, where a show used access as a starting, uh, starting place. And because of that, it wasn't like a, tr fashion, a traditional fashion show that one might imagine with the runway and models coming down the runway and going back in this very kind of orderly fashion, lights on the runway, everything else is dark, complete quiet. Um, it was a space where models could move about as they moved about. The audience could move about as they moved about. Um, lights were similar throughout the space and really trying to imagine what could a space look like that all bodies could be in and all bodies felt welcome in. Yeah, and I was obviously at that show, and it was so evident that folks felt welcome throughout the entire process, not only models, not only audience members, but even, like, folks who were providing access, and it was such a success uh, from my perspective. Um, how do you feel that, like, a crit politic and a crit aesthetic are not only, like, influencing the fashion education, but really, like, the end product that your students are creating now that you've kind of brought that into your leadership at the school? I think, I think the change that we're hoping to make, or I'm hoping that, you know, with my colleagues and with the students we can make, is move from this idea in fashion of adaptive fashion to really crip fashion. I think what I mean by that is so often when we think or we see fashion and disability in the industry, in the world, it's often been designed from a place of adapting, which means that something is designed for a non-disabled body, uh, a non-disabled user, that's the finished product, and then it's modified, it's shifted, it's changed, it's adapted for disabled wearers and users. And so what that does in many ways is it, one, it all creates this hierarchy where sort of non-disabled bodies are the starting place and are at the top and anything else is an add-on or change for that. 
but it also completely limits creativity and possibility uh, because you all, you've already like really narrowed and limited the starting place from which we create and design. And, and something is fun and experimental and creative as fashion, how boring it is to do that, how uninspiring and exciting. And so where I think I want to see movement is this place where we start with disabled bodies and disabled users and disabled experiences. Um, that is the starting place for possibility and creativity and ways of being in the world. And we design from those places, whether we're creating events, whether we're creating strategies and businesses and fashion, whether we're creating clothing. But it's really about recognizing there's so many possibilities and let's start from a place of possibility and start from a place of bodies in all their diversity rather than just starting from a place of one body and one way of being in the world. And that's really where I want to see our curriculum and the fashion industry move. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That would change my life, you know, as as a young disabled woman, like, especially thinking about, like, shoes and footwear. Oh, my gosh. Like, the adaptive or accessible options for those kind of things. If you have to wear, like, leg braces, for example, were just, like, absolutely non-existent growing up. Um, and even still, the shopping can be really, really challenging. So um, that's just one example. But, yeah, I think it would, like, change people's, like, abilities to move through the world and to feel, like, good in themselves and, like, they have options, you know, beyond one orthopedic pair of shoes, for example. Yeah, I think we sort of talked in the beginning of, like, when I talked about how fashion was really strong held to this sort of one definition. Um, part of that wasn't just defining fashion as European and white, but defining fashion as belonging to one body, mm -hmm. right? A thin, white, non-disabled, cisgender body. That was the body that fashion was designed for. That was the starting place. That is the body that's fashionable, right? That's the top of the hierarchy. And as a result, everything is then sort of adapted to fit, quote, other bodies. Mm. But the fashionable body, the fashion body is still that one ideal. And I think that's really what we need to move away from to open up these possibilities and recognize that there doesn't, right? It's not about, it's also not about replacing this one body with another body or saying that, all right, we want to get rid of a size two model um, and replace them with a size 18 model is the new ideal or standard. Right. Right. It's recognizing that all bodies are different. We need to, like, liberation is moving away from a hierarchy completely mm. and recognizing that there are a variety and diversity of bodies in the world. How can we design with bodies as they are and recognize that there's going to be multiple designs, multiple clothing styles, multiple fits that fit the diversity of bodies that are. And I think that that's really the move. And obviously we can see how that then works better for the environment, works better for a multiplicity of entrepreneurs, doesn't hoard wealth with a few corporations. Like all of this really is how fashion creates economic justice, environmental justice, social justice. It's all connected. But this is really the move and the change. And 
Um, Rebirth Garments is a great brand out of Chicago, and they're a brand that is disability, size, gender inclusive. All the garments they create are custom garments based on bodies that order them and their needs. And I think Rebirth really in many ways provides a model of how where design needs to go and how design needs to move. Uh, their aesthetic is also about radical visibility. So for mm-hmm. them, it's really about neon. It's about geometry. It's about color. It's about spandex. It's about claiming bodies and claiming space. Uh, their fashion shows take audio description of garments and models and mix them into uh, really like into music and to beats for the soundtrack and so in many ways they're path-breaking I think a future of where I'd like to see fashion go and I think that's really inspiring for fashion students because it shows the possibilities that exist for them and where they can go Um, I'm teaching a course this semester called design justice which is like a brand new course uh, that I've developed and it's a course that really is about how can students create designs to start from bodies where they are at a small scale that's about collaboration and ultimately creating designs that shift power and structures in the world. Um, yeah, so it's this really just new way of thinking about design that I think works with bodies and the environment and the world in not just a respectful way, but in a way that even in a small scale creates this kind of transformation that we want to see, that I want to see, and that many of my students want to see. Hmm. And it's mind-blowing to me that that's not standard, that, you know, to my limited knowledge, like, that sounds like fashion education is still working to that so-called European norm. Um, It's really, really frightening, but, um, yeah. Yeah, it's not unlike so many disciplines where we look at, you know, history or English or, you know, what we teach in high schools and elementary schools, right? We tell this sort of single history, uh, single group of authors, single stories, rather than these parallel histories and parallel stories and parallel narratives. Um, And I think so much, particularly for fashion, fashion education was so built on serving industry, really preparing students with the skills and the knowledge that industry had as it was, as it is. Um, so they could get jobs rather than seeing fashion education as a place that should actively challenge and reimagine industry to prepare students for where industry should be, not where it mm. is. And I think that's the shift, and that's certainly the shift, um, as Jared Ryerson, I'm trying to bring about with my colleagues, and I know other fashion educators are also seeing that shift. Um, I think the other thing I'd want to say when we're thinking about fashion, um, and how many people really can't find clothes for them or accessories for them, is also thinking about who is designing, right? Who is creating? And how does fashion school, by its curriculum and structure and space and all of these other things that right, are required to complete a degree, automatically limit access? So automatically only invite certain bodies to become fashion students and then move into the industry, um, and immediately exclude other bodies from even literally entering the front door. 
And so I think that that is also part of the shift and change is that fashion schools need to also ground everything they're doing in access to invite in more students who will become the next creatives and designers and business leaders and can draw on their own lived experiences of being in the world, the lived experiences of their families and friends and their communities and create. And I think that that's also part of this change is that fashion education for so many reasons has been so exclusionary of who can even enter that front door that part of it then is really getting rid of those barriers and reimagining the starting place. So the designers and creatives and business leaders who exist reflect a diverse group of people. Right, because the process of fashion creation is so physical often, right? So embodied. So I wonder when you're talking about, like, you're sending out tools to students right now, learning remotely, um, if there's any examples of sort of adaptive um, tools for creation that you've come across or that some of your students might be experimenting with. Yeah. Um, Well, so much, I think, I think this is a really good question and I think one there's not and a lot of that is because the industry has really up until now never really considered disability in an authentic and real and I think systemic way Um, and I think that that's really been a loss to the possibilities and creativity that opens up but also I think again coming from this kind of white colonial idea that the fashion industry glorifies one designer as a genius so one designer creates a collection. One designer needs to be this all-knowing person who has to create a collection every season, a collection that will work for all different types of bodies. They get the credit, the glory, the recognition. So fashion, again, is built on this really single star system. And how much pressure and stress is that on one person? A lot as we've seen with fashion students and fashion designers go through, and the incredible burnout because of this single star system. But it also really doesn't honor the possibilities that collaboration and interdependence bring us, right? And I mean, I think nobody knows it better than the disability community. And I think that's also part of shifting design is How can design be about collaboration? Why are we celebrating one person as a designer rather than designing in groups where people bring different knowledges, different skills, different ideas, and they bring those together to create a collection in clothing? And not only does does that allow everyone to contribute in their own ways, but that also takes a lot of pressure off one person, results in a lot less burnout, and I think creates something way more inspiring, exciting, and useful. And so that's so much of also a place we're trying to move our curriculum to, where design isn't seen as this single source and this single designer, but design becomes about collaboration. And so then how does that offer more access to folks to come in and contribute in ways that work for them? And that's also that shift in curriculum hopefully will also allow us to really authentically invite and welcome in more people to fashion and then hopefully more people to the industry. Yeah, I think what you said about like community really leaning into collaboration and interdependence like speaks to me so truly because I always thought I was such an independent person 
but it was just because I like didn't actually have crypt community. And now that I work in crypt community, I'm like the idea of doing something alone seems like the worst idea ever because I don't have the best ideas. And it, yeah, I think teaching students that like collaboration isn't a negative aspect and it doesn't speak negatively on like their own ideas and own agency, but really that collaboration is a way to enhance um, and interdependence being this kind of exchange of ideas, exchange of labor, exchange of support, exchange of care does really benefit the creative process and just your heart process. Completely. It's such, I think, a loss to fashion in the world when we valued so much on this myth of independence. Um, I think we've lost a lot and harmed a lot because of that. And I think in so many creative spaces, there is this value on this single artist and what happens when we shift that and what opens up. And certainly in my space in fashion, that's really one of the goals is I really want to move away from that myth because it's limited possibilities, but it's also just created so much harm. And how can we then really start to create an interdependent environment? In this design justice class, the very first assignment um, that I've created was this uh, mutual aid and collective care assignment, where students will work in teams to think about um, how, how they can come up with an offering in service to the class. They can all support each other and together create sort of collective care by all bringing something based on their own experience and their own creativity um, to support each other. And as a way really to, I think, highlight that design needs to move away from this idea that there's this inter independent, all-knowing one person that is so self-sufficient they can totally take care of themselves, to this idea of, community care, collective care, and independent, interdependence, and what happens when we can support each other and we each value what we can each bring and we bring that together. So yeah, that's sort of what I'm trying to think because I think that would make a better just fashion culture and community. Or just a, like a better learning community for any, any of us. Um, if all classes started that way, I think the culture would look really, really different. So then I obviously know that you are working on a project right now entitled Cripping Masculinity because I work with you on it. Um, and we definitely have to shift um, the process given that we're all remote working. Um, as kind of like the leader of this project, director, whatever your title is that I should know, um, what has been kind of like the thought process for you on how you're kind of readapting uh, the process of this project, not only for the rest of the research team, but also for our research participants and the community at large? Yeah. Um, I'm going to put, I know you're going to have show notes, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So in the show notes, I will add um, a reference where I was inspired by this assignment. Um, for this amazing author from this book, Building Access. And I also will add something on cribbing masculinities um, for people that are interested in learning more. But this is really a project that I think aims to take everything we're talking about right now 
and put that into practice. It's engaging a group of deaf, disability, and man-identified, cis and trans men, non-binary, masculine-identified folks in creating fashion. So it's about understanding their experiences in the world through fashion. It's about dreaming up their ideal outfit that would fit their bodies and express who they are, that they would love to wear, letting them really lead the process but work in collaboration with fashion design students to bring that into the world and onto their body and then produce with them a fashion show, completely accessible fashion show and exhibition to tell these stories and showcase these incredible clothing that they've made. Um, and that's what the project's about. It's really to start to put into practice this new way of making fashion and highlight the role of fashion in expansively telling our stories and histories of gender and identity in all their diversity. Um, that's really the point. And to really imagine what that is like and what that is for a variety of disability, deaf, and man-identified folks. So the first part of this project was wardrobe interviews, where we were going into people's houses, asking them to show us their clothes and talk about the clothes that were in their drawers, hung in their closets, where were they from, what do they mean to them, where do they wear them, what stories do they tell. As a result of COVID and social distancing, we had to transition that online. And so we're doing digital wardrobe interviews over Zoom and asking people to show us their clothes, talk about their clothes through this virtual format. And I think so far it's working well, uh, but I do miss the materiality. I do miss the tactile nature of clothes. Um, as someone with low vision, the tactile nature of clothing is so important. The embodied nature of clothing is so mm -hmm. important to me. Um, and the visual just doesn't really capture it. I'm so interested in how clothes feel, how clothes, what they're like on the skin, um, how they fit the body. And so we're making this work to see how this goes, but recognizing that this is not going to tell the whole story, that a digital wardrobe interviews won't work for everyone. And so hopefully we'll be able to go back to in-person wardrobe interviews soon enough, and it, particularly for the folks that that's going to be better for. And then hopefully by the time we do our design workshops, that will be back in person. Um, because it is one of these things where we talk about fashion being about community. And part of that community is being connected to bodies and being connected to the land through the tactile nature of clothes, right? Clothes that come from the earth that are made with others um, and that we wear on our skin. And so mm -hmm. this transition is, is working from a needing to move the project along standpoint, but I certainly also mourn that something isn't there and I'm excited to have that next stage and have that stage where we can engage in the tactile and physical nature of clothing again. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of like clothing on Zoom, I know you also recently published a piece looking at how masculinity and its presentation has shifted um, with work from home and with remote working. Is that right? Yeah, um, I wrote a blog post for Gender in Society, uh, which is like a blog um, that's connected to an academic journal where I published, thinking about what, how clothing 
changes for uh, thinking about the body and gender um, on Zoom. And I think I would love if we could all dress any way we want in the world and claim radical visibility like rebirth garments, you know, like their collection, and just be that way in the world. But I also recognize that that is not possible for many folks who face harassment and attack and violence and death because of their bodies and the way those bodies are dressed. Um, and so much of clothing and dressing in ways that meet social expectation does allow access to jobs, to romance, to social scenes, to life. And so in this way, clothing is not is not just frivolous, it's not just fun, it's not just about self-expression, but it's about attending a funeral or wedding. It's about getting that job and earning income. It's about finding a partner and accessing desire, right? Clothing provides that for folks in the world, and particularly, particularly for folks and disabled folks who face marginalization and stigmatization and exclusion, that clothing can help meet these entrenched social norms and expectations. And so in all of my talk about fashion being creative and fun, I don't want to deny about how clothing is also this access to life for us. And that particularly for BIPOC disabled folks. And so I really think that clothing then also serves that purpose, and so that's also part of this conversation. Now I don't remember your question, and I went on a tangent. No, it's perfect. <laughs> I was just maybe I was just asking about that article, which you chatted about, but maybe you want to share what some of those findings were, um, how people's sense of fashion um, may or may not have shifted with working on Zoom, and we're all, you know, visible from generally the shoulders up. Um, what what we might have found socially, what's going on yeah. with, with people's fashion right now? Well, I can talk from my own experience that I really haven't worn pants since <laughs> March 15th or shoes. Um, so I think what this allows us to do is it allows us to do two things. I think one, it allows us to wear clothes that are comfortable on our bodies. Um, that actually fit, that fabric feels good, that don't constrain or cut off or are just uncomfortable. Really fabrics and fits that work without needing to worry about these social norms and expectations that I can't wear jogging pants or I can't wear track pants or I can't wear shorts or leggings to this particular situation because no one will know because they're only seeing me from the head up. And so in some ways, how does that open up um, opportunity and possibility for folks that do not have access or that just do not, do not have clothing that exists for them um, based on their bodies for these social contexts to be in spaces where normally there would be significant stigmatization or significant exclusion because the sort of at least the bottom part of our clothing is no longer being seen. Um, but then sort of my deeper thinking was also in what ways does this with 
you know, if we go back in some ways to meeting in person, in what ways does that entrench deeper inequities, right? And mm-hmm. that we're then expecting that when we're back, things are going to be the same because we think that person might be wearing dress pants or might be wearing something more, quote, appropriate for that place that we don't even think about it. But then we come back and we expect the world to be the same. And guess what? There's still no dress pants or there's still no skirts or dresses that are available and designed for me. And so, hello. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like all of these things, like what's then going to happen? Like, so I think then the hope in all of this is that there will be this deep learning about that in some ways the pandemic and social distancing and remote working allows bodies to be bodies in their spaces as they are. And how can we then take that, rather than hide that in the home, bring that out into the world in ways that are respected and valued and just free of safety and attack. And so I think that that's really the hope is that it'll be, well, bodies are going to dress the way they're going to dress in ways that work for them. And does this division between like home dress and professional dress, who does that serve and who even created that division, right? Because if we think of professional dress, so much of that is based on this white European masculine cisgender male standard of heterosexual standard of dress, right? And certainly like uh, as a queer disabled man, I've never felt connected to that. I always felt uncomfortable in ties and blazers, but certainly when I was first hired at Ryerson, I felt I needed to wear a blazer every day to work. I needed to project that quote authority, um, that like masculine authority. And as I've really become more secure in my position, I've been able to play a lot more, but recognizing that that is really limiting and constricting and it doesn't allow us to dress as we want to dress in ways that work for us. And if we're not doing that, we're not really bringing our creativity and value to the spaces that we're in because we're feeling we need to play a part or hide aspects of ourselves. And then right, that's, there's something really lost when we do that. Um, and not that we have a choice, right? We're, we're, in many ways, we're working within these structures that exist. It's not that there is choice, right? We recognize that to, quote, exist in these spaces, this is what we have to do to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I'm hoping that then some of the learning of the pandemic is that we'll just have a better appreciation that people are going to dress in so many ways and that this idea of professional dress is amazing for some folks and some bodies, and they're going to dress like that on their Zoom calls <laughs> because, yes, but for others, it's, totally not who they are. It's not comfortable. It doesn't express who they are. It limits who they are. And so those folks should dress in the ways they want to exist as well. Yeah, I so feel you on the blazer thing. Like as a young disabled woman who is very small and looks very young, I also feel like I have to like almost age myself up a little bit depending on the context to be taken seriously professionally because if I like limp into a room my assumption is that people are going to be like, are you waiting for your mom? Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. you're, you're the one here to facilitate this thing. Oh, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and so doing some of that signaling that way, but um, yeah, thank you for that food for thought. I think that's on a lot of people's minds recently. And I hope, yeah, I hope we can kind of reject some of that rigid professionalization as we move forward. I hope so. And I hope people did like, particularly, like, quote, leaders and, like, work 
places really open up that conversation just as much as we're hoping to have a conversation about is there going to be this hybrid between remote working can people actually work from home rather than have to come in every day i hope that conversation about quote dress and like professional dress and what to wear also is part of that because that's also a big barrier for so many folks to working um and to bringing themselves to work and even existing in those spaces. And so I hope that's part of this conversation because I think so many people um, have really found value in dressing ways they want to dress and comfortably and what that does and how that feels on the body and how you feel in the body when you're dressed in ways that work for you. Um, but I hope we can honor that and bring that forward with us. And I hope that becomes a real conversation in workspaces as we move forward. Mm-hmm. And the time saved from not having to, like, perform professionalization or femininity, like, the time it takes to get ready to go into the office versus to work from home is also huge. Completely. Completely. And I think, yeah, a part of the conversation on clothing is also, particularly if we're talking about, like, a masculine workspace um, or a workspace that's been masculinized, is this idea that in addition to fashion being seen um, or as you, I mean, you sort of said at the beginning, there's this idea that fashion has been in this sort of European thought. It's been cast off as something that's vain and frivolous and ultimately feminine and not masculine. Mm. And so, right, why should we care about clothing? Why should we talk about clothing? Clothing isn't important. Um, if you're even thinking about clothing in the body, right, that opens up ideas that you're thinking about the body. This exposes ideas of vulnerability, of femininity, and how does that work in organizations and workplaces that have been defined so rigidly as masculine? Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly when the majority of leaders are men still, thanks to patriarchy and are being and white men, um, right, for them even to open up a conversation around clothing or what you're going to wear to dress or questioning that. Um, it's something that for many of Many white straight men, white straight non-disabled men in these roles, they don't have the language or the vocabulary. They've never been taught to do that. And then thinking about fashion, talking about fashion, perhaps, or does, then jeopardize this sense of masculinity. And then there's this real nervousness and vulnerability in doing that. So I think even having those conversations, when I said, yes, let's have conversations around clothes, I also recognize that that is not always possible given these structures of gender that exist and who is in these roles and how they've been brought up and what they've been taught a leader should and should not talk about. So, yeah, I mean, fashion is so integral in all of these systems and structures in many ways um, that we may not often, you know, think about. But I think what we do think about it, we realize that because we do get dressed in the day. We do wear clothes. Um, and those clothes in some way, right, whether we're thinking about what we want to wear or just about how the clothes fit and feel on our bodies, right, like that tactile experience, all of those are just show, like are part of the role clothes play in our lives and everyone's life in some way. So then you talked a lot today about, like, these big changes that we want to see in the fashion industry and fashion education. Who are some leaders that you look towards for inspiration on these changes that you'd like to see in the industry? 
I think there's really two leaders that I look to, and I look to them for different reasons. I think justice and liberation in fashion is about creating a crypt fashion community and crypt fashion industry while simultaneously changing existing dominant fashion systems that are grounded in ableism and able-bodiedness. And Sinead Burke is an incredible fashion activist, speaker, educator, who has really intervened into the core of the dominant fashion industry. Being on the cover of UK Vogue, with a, being an editor-at-large of UK Vogue, speaking at the business of fashion, writing prolific pieces, for industry uh, is a disability-identified woman who has advocated about the need for fashion to welcome in disabled bodies. And her work has been profound in creating conversation and creating change. And when she was on the cover of the Business of Fashion magazine, she worked with Burberry, and they recreated a trench coat to fit her. Um, and other fashion brands have done this with her for different events, for different shoots. And I think in many ways, this is about teaching designers something that they've never done before, that they don't know, and exposing the creativity and possibilities. And in many ways, she's working with them in this collaborative and interdependent way to bring this to this new way of designing. So it's not only her activism as a thought leader, really, but I think her activism working with designers to create clothes for her body to guide them through that process and to teach them. And I have so much respect for how she does that. Sky Scuba Cub is the creative director of Rebirth Garments, and I've talked about them before on the podcast. And they have created this disability, gender, size-inclusive label that is designed custom for each body that orders them. And I think what I love about Sky and Rebirth is that they are creating this fashion community, creating fashion on their own terms, refusing the dominant Western able-bodied fashion system, and saying that this is what fashion is for me, for my community, and this is what I want to create on our own terms. And I think those two approaches, the approaches of changing and transforming the dominant system, but also refusing that dominant system and creating your own system are both necessary to bring about disability justice and liberation. And I think that those are really two individuals in fashion that are doing that. And I think that's a model I really want to hold dear because so often I think, again, in this binary thinking we've been taught, we, we think that you have to either just refuse the system or work within the system, but I think that you actually need both. You need equity and liberation simultaneously. And so I think that those are two approaches to creating change in fashion that I think are going to have material impacts on disability communities by creating clothing, by creating jobs, by creating representation, and ultimately changing attitudes, perspectives, and possibilities. Amazing. Um Thank you so much for all the expertise you've shared with us and our listeners. We like to end 
cryptine on a bit of a positive and uplifting note. Uh, so I got last, two last questions for you. Um, and the first one is what is your dream? What is your vision? What is your hope for the future of fashion, fashion education, and the industry at large? My dream for fashion is that we go back to what fashion always was, a place to dress multiple bodies, tell multiple stories, celebrate multiple histories, engage with materials, and honor the land. That we recognize the harm that this capitalist colonial fashion system has caused and recognize that that's not what fashion really was at the beginning and that's not where fashion brings people joy and that we go back to a place where we see a diversity of folks including and centered deaf and disability identified folks as fashion creators leaders designers and also clothes that are designed for all bodies that exist and how they want to exist. It's a big vision, um, but that's really what I hope to see. And in my own very small little bubble, I hope that that's what I can help make Ryerson fashion, um, a place where we can take that vision. And maybe it's not going to happen yet in the world, but at least in this little school, in this little bubble, that's what we can create. Um, and that's really my dream and my vision. A beautiful dream, a beautiful vision. Makes me so happy. Um, and our very, very last question before we wrap up for the morning. Um, in these unprecedented times, um, that we've seen a lot of changes and challenges and we're kind of inundated with negativity and news and our surroundings. Uh, what has been bringing you joy recently? I think there's two things that have been bringing me joy. Um, in a very personal, embodied way, not wearing shoes. Um, yes, retweet, co-sign. <laughs> it's been so nice just to let my like bare feet touch the floor, not feeling constricted with socks or shoes that I usually feel. Um, yeah, it's been very freeing and calming and relaxing and just like, it's just wonderful. It just feels wonderful in my body by not wearing shoes and socks. And I love that. And that's bringing me a lot of joy as I do everything. So yes, for not wearing shoes and socks. And I will continue during this remote semester. Um, I think the second thing is, in all of this tragedy and like really deep reckoning with anti-black racism and injustice, I feel a sense of real hope that the injustices in the world, some of them, particularly around anti-black racism, have been exposed to an audience and to people who never understood them before or believed them before or engaged with them before, that there's a real conversation happening outside of K-12 
communities that were already having that conversation in a way that has possibility um, and possibility mm-hmm. for real change. And I think now is really the time, right, to see if we're going to not let these murders that have been ongoing be in vain or if we're going to take that learning and really make change. And I'm trying to hold on to the hope that this isn't going to be in vain, that there's going to be learning and real concrete action that comes from this. And from what I've been seeing from fashion brands that are reaching out to us, from what's happening at the university, um, I'm feeling hopeful that institutions and systems and people are making change. And so that's in all this strategy, maybe not joy, but it's bringing me hope and comfort. Crip Times is presented as a part of the Wheels on the Ground podcast network. This podcast is produced by us and supported by Tangled Art Plus Disability and Bodies in Translation. If you enjoyed this interview, we release new episodes every Monday wherever good podcasts can be found.